and welcome to Bra Meets World. But it's Bra Meets World. Your boy Meets World Found Cause. This is episode 98. I'm Siege. I'm Tony Curtis. And uh, we have a very special episode and a very special guest to introduce to you guys. Um, for all of you who have been listening to us for quite a while, we uh, you'll know that we were featured in an article not too long ago uh, where we were talked about this podcast and our love for Boy Meets World and the 90s. And the writer of that article, Yasmin Shemish, is here joining us. Say hello. Hey. Thank you guys for having me. I'm so honored to be here and to be joining you and to uh, just fan out over <laughs> our shared love for Boy Meets World. I'm, I'm really, I'm really thrilled. So thank you. Well, we're happy to have you. Um, do you mind just sharing with our audience what your history uh, with the show Boy Meets World has been? Yeah, I mean, I I grew up in the '90s. Um, I I watched TGIF. <laughs> every Friday. Yes. <laughs> I, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I grew up loving it. Um, I, I've rewatched it over and over, over the years. Cause it's just one of those shows that just, you know, it's, it's kind of timeless and it always resonates. Um, and it's something that still resonates, you know, as a, a woman in her thirties now, I'd still, you know, watch it and I, I still get stuff from it. So, um, yeah, I love it. Um, I, I love Love talking about it <laughs> and there's a lot to unpack which is interesting um but yeah i mean the show has always uh always meant a lot to me well awesome um we're really happy to get your perspective uh specifically for this episode which deals with um you know kind of going from school to the professional setting. And obviously, you know, you have been featured in like a ton of great magazines and written like a great article. So I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on um, the, the journey that Corey and Sean go on in this episode. And also to get your thoughts on, on Amy as a writer, um, considering that you're also a writer. <laughs> oh no, thank you. That's, that's really nice. um, yeah, I have, there's a lot to unpack in this episode. I'm, I'm very I, have, I took the words right out of Siege's mouth. <laughs> yeah, no, no, honestly, like, the, like, um, I'm really excited to get into this because this is one of my favorite episodes, and it's one that I remember. And I think it's for those of you who know how much I love Amy, the character. I think it's because we get like some insight into Amy, and that is like why I'm like this episode for me was very impactful. Um, so uh, I, I think we can just get right into the tell me about it, and then we can we can talk a little bit more. So uh, hmm. T, do you have a tell me about it for us? Yes, I do. <clears throat> tell me about it. The boys got a work study. Corey thought he'd be better than Sean and Amy. Stories are turning everyone on. I like it. I like it. <laughs> well, I mean, I definitely I can't wait to talk to you guys about Amy's erotic fiction. Um, that's something I'm very excited to talk I've about. Feeny called it. He's called it provocative. Fiction. Provocative. Feeny blushed. <laughs> I just I loved. He was like. Oh, oh my. <laughs> really? <laughs> Let's just say there's a whole genre about that. Like, like now, I mean, like, what was, wasn't Fifty Shades of Grey just like someone's like erotic fan fiction at first? So. I believe Fifty Shades of Grey was inspired by Twilight, which was inspired by um, 
uh, My Chemical Romance, which was inspired by 9-11, if the internet has taught me. It always comes back to 9-11. It really changed everything. Okay, this is uh, season five, episode nine, How to Succeed in Business. Confident Corey is amazed when Sean is more successful at their work-study jobs. Sean proves to be a whiz at public relations while Corey gets stuck in the mailroom. Meanwhile, Amy goes back to college for her participation in Eric's creative writing class, embarrasses him with her extremely frank self-revelations. Mm. Let me just say her, her extremely frank revelations, Feeney wasn't the only fan. Jack was also a big fan of Amy's work as well. So I, I really wish, um, you know, before we just get into this, the thing I was thinking of while I was watching this was, wow, I wish they would have encouraged Amy to keep writing as the, the show goes on. I don't remember there being this ongoing story about Amy being a writer, but just that would have been a, like a nice little BC story just for her to have throughout the series. Just maybe she releases a novel or something like after the birth of her child, next child or something. It would have been nice to see them, them grow with her with that. Yeah, absolutely. I think also, I think this is the first time that we kind of see Amy as like a full person beyond her one role as mom, or I guess like dual role as, as mother and wife, right? She sort of becomes this like beyond this like one dimensional character. And there's a lot, there's a lot that I want to say. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, that, I think this, it was a really important moment. And I, I feel, I mean, I'm not, if my memory serves me correctly, I think it's it sort of continues in a way like she they show her you know having other interests and you know doing other things I, I don't quite remember any other career stuff or writing stuff um hopefully that happens and in the earlier in the earlier seasons amy was supposed to be running a gallery i think she was a real estate agent for a period of time but um honestly this is probably the most detailed story we've had from amy and i can't remember um not since uh amy and alan bought the uh camping store the did have we had her such so integral to a storyline so it's, it's been a while even with the the buying of the store the whole response to that was like alan made a decision without amy amy solved it and you know it was like yeah it was like woman wife comes in to clean up the mess husband made it wasn't like amy was like i think you should quit your job and let's figure out what to do it was very reactionary and i love that this was amy being proactive and amy being like you know what i'm good at something and i had i'm a full-fledged adult and i i just I'm so excited to talk about this episode yeah. because not only is it really good character development for Amy, but it's also just a great moment to show kids that, you know, parents are people too. And I know like we always like, there's that cliche, but in general, this is a really good way of being like, not only are they human, but like they are adults. Like they have like dreams and desires and these things that we just don't give them credit for when we're selfish teenagers. Yeah. Absolutely. I think like the moment where you really get that is when, you know, she goes up in the classroom when she's, you know, in the classroom with Eric and I mean, he's shocked. Okay. And then, you know, he goes up to present her essay and he makes this, you know, this like scoff, like, what is it? A thousand words on Dryerland, you know? And I remember like, I was like, <gasps> but there's two things from that. Like one, like you said, it's this kind of, you know, the kid's limited view of 
the parent's existence being anything beyond their parent, you know, like you have this sort of like bubble that you exist in where you only see them as one thing maybe, you know? And then um, I think it really like that comment also goes back to these sort of, you know, gender role stereotypes that are really perpetuated in TV sitcoms that you see um, particularly, you know, the moms and, you know, there's an evolution of that, um, which obviously, you know, is, reflective of the ideals of the time, um, not reflective of their actual lives, but you know, <laughs> you see, you see, it's like definitely, you know, I mean, like you go back to a show like, like Leave it to Beaver, you know, going way back and you see June Cleaver and she's limited to being, you know, a housewife and her role is, the sole purpose is to care for the, her husband and her kids. And then, you know, definitely. You go, yeah. And then like yeah. this evolution that goes on, sorry. And, um, yeah, and it's like an interesting point in the 90s where it gets to um, where you see these like the roles of the, the suburban um, middle class mom gets explored in a lot of interesting ways. Yeah, definitely. When you take a look at the shows, um, you know, this show was really inspired by shows like Happy Days and Leave it to Beaver and some of those other 1960s shows um, to see uh, the mother character go from her main pride and joy being a mother and a wife. You know, you think of like a Carol Brady who like that's her whole shebang and she's thrilled about it to Amy actually challenging Eric and saying like, hey, I've been a wife and, my mo and a mother for years, but I'm more than that. Like I thought it's actually actually a very powerful moment and you know one of my favorite things about this episode is that you're right like yes there is a little bit of gender roles and you know kind of outdated uh, expectations of what a woman is capable of but most of Eric's understanding of what's going on is from a child's perspective and I think we all go through that moment where we understand that our parents are human and I think that's such an important part of us growing up is when we understand like, oh, like I, I'm, I'm now older than my parents were when they had me and like trying to think about like their life experiences and, and give them credit for trying and all these things. Like it's, it's such an important part to becoming an adult. And so I really love that that was featured in this episode. I cannot tell you how often I apologize to my mother for my behavior as a child because I, I think I've said this a few times. I don't know if I said it on the podcast, but I had a conversation with my sister not too long ago. And I was like, the idea that I, like, I have all these things to do and I'm going to go home and cook for another individual. And the only thing that I asked that individual to do is to take chicken out of the fridge and they didn't do it. Like I would <laughs> explode at this point. Like I like literally would like maybe go on a shooting rampage if I was like I'm the one who's going to cook for you the one thing you had to do was like this one step and you can't do it and I think that like you said it's just like especially now as we get older um you you do exactly what TC said where you're looking back and you're like wait my parents had how many kids or my parents had kids at all like like a responsibility like feeding someone besides myself makes no sense um, but like <laughs> Like, like parents do this all the time and um, you just really become appreciative of the sacrifices that your parents made, but also realize that, hey, you know, maybe they do have some, like some interests that you never would have thought about, but they're really good at this, this talent. 
Well, we all know what Amy's interested in, and it's getting with Alan. Because the one thing that me and you know is that Amy and Alan, they fucks. Like, they get it on. This this is another episode where we were like, Amy and Alan, we know Amy and Alan fucks, and this episode was like, in case you forgot. (laughs) In case you forgot. So, okay, so what did you guys think about the decision to make Amy short stories specifically about sex and like her relationship with Alan um, versus her writing about, you know, some other kind of fiction. Yeah, that's an interesting point actually, because, and then, you know, at the very end, her, the other story that she talks about is giving birth to Eric. Yeah. It was like right, right after, as the credits were rolling too. So it's sort of also kind of like limiting her in this one capacity, you know? Sure. So like she's still telling stories as a wife and a mother, even though she longs to be more than the wife than the mother. Yeah. But at least I think it is still a significant step to, you know, her being this, you know, multidimensional person. It's like a step to her getting there. Just the fact that she is, you know, going back to school and, you know, and pursuing something that she's passionate about and, and putting herself out there and standing up to her, to her son and telling him that, you know, this is important to me. And, there was that moment in the apartment where, um, you know, he said to her, like, I'm the child, what he, I wrote it down, what did he say? College yeah. is my time, you should stay home and raise your kids. And she says, listen, I've been a mother and wife my whole life. And if that, and I wanna be more, if that makes you uncomfortable, then I should leave and, and she left. And I was like, you know what, good for you. It's really, that's a, you know, very significant moment, you know? It was a very healthy way to handle that. Yeah. If there's one thing about Amy, it's that when we get the screen time, Amy is usually the most level-headed, intelligent person in the room. Like, almost all, like, again, most of the time, even more so than Feeny. Um, Amy's the one who comes in and she's just like, I've looked at this from a realistic, like, empathetic way, and I get that you're hurting, and I'm not even going to run into you, but I also am going to let you know you hurt my feelings as a human being, and I don't have to stay here and take that. Yes. Um, and which, I, I, again, it's just like, for me, I'm always going to be Team Amy, um, because she just really, really, when they let her character shine, it, it's just like a beacon of something to, to work towards, in my opinion. Do you guys think that Eric encouraging Amy to initially get out of the house and to do something like different with her life, do you think that was genuine? The way the show plays it is that he makes the comment simply, and then right after he makes it, Amy leaves and he's free to watch TV by himself. Uh, I didn't know if that was his ultimate goal or if he actually was encouraging her to to get out because it, it is interesting, like full, full circle moment is you have her at the beginning of the episode, Eric saying you should get out of the house. And then later on in the episode, him saying you belong in the house doing laundry. Um, so just kind of going back almost the exact words he said. Uh, I just thought, I was curious if that was a genuine emotion from Eric or not. I think it was probably the first one, I think when he's telling her to get out of the house, I think that's probably coming from that place of the child where like, I just want like, yeah, go out and I can, it was like a self-serving thing. Yeah. You know, I don't think it was too, too deep. Whereas maybe, you know, his true feelings come out where, you know, he says later, I want you to come back in the house when he's like, oh wait, no, my, my mom should be home, you know? Yeah. And I think what's what's interesting about that, and so I, I just was listening to this podcast about Stepford Wives and like, you know, like the, the story of the Stepford Wives and how, um, again, what, what 
that entire story is is about the backlash that men have to women gaining their independence. And I think that what Eric, when Eric was like, you should get out of the house and do something. There are numerous stories where it's like men in the sixties, you know, again, this is uh, after happy days or like in, in any decade really, or like you should get out and have an interest, but they assume you'll get into baking or something that they could like just write off and it won't be anything. And the moment you, show that, no, I can be successful on my own, their main kind of been like, well, that doesn't fit with what I have in mind for you. You know, it's like that, that's not how I have you classified and therefore you shouldn't be doing it anymore. You're messing with my perception of you and so you should stop. Messing with your perception of them, but also challenging a man to say like, I can exceed where you succeed, you know, I belong right beside you, not somewhere else is, is like the fact that Amy basically says, no, I don't belong in the kitchen. And so many words is a pretty um, progressive idea for television moms anyway. Oh my God. Yes. So I, I was, I was doing, you know, I was thinking about other moms, you know, of the same era on TV shows. And, you know, there was very, there was a few that were kind of, pushing those boundaries a little bit. Um, like, like Roseanne, oh, who I, you know, I, Roseanne. I have complicated feelings about her, how her now is. Yes. <laughs> you know, but certainly like at the time she was really important, really yeah. significant in pushing those boundaries. You know, she was, yes, she was a domestic goddess, but she was also, she also had a job. She was also really loud and unapologetically, you know, in your face, acknowledged that being a wife and a mother was also, was messy. It wasn't this perfect, Stepford ideal, you know, and, um, and she challenged Dan very much, you know, and, and then, but the thing is also at the same time, you know, you had, like, there's these other examples where like, I think of like, you know, even I'm thinking of like Jill from Home Improvement. I Thank literally was thinking like, 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 Jill. I was thinking Jill. <laughs> Not on the same wavelength. But like, you know, it's like that similar kind of like relationship where she was also, she challenged, oh my God, yes. You can't see my phone, but it, it literally had, it had Patricia Richardson's photo. So I could make sure I was saying the name right. Well, at the funny. same time, I was IMD being Betsy Randall because I was like, I think she played Jill's friend on Home Improvement oh before God. she was on Boy Meets World. <laughs> Did. Full circle. Uh, amazing, amazing, amazing. But yeah, but like these women, like they are also challenged, you know, that role. At the same time, they were also kind of their power was at home. At yes. the same time, right? So it was like this interesting clash. On the other hand, there was some really awesome like bucking of that stereotype. One which is Aunt Viv from The Fresh Prince. Yes. Because she had, I would say she was on par with Uncle Phil because she had a PhD. She was like a university professor, you know, she was, she wasn't this, you know, kind of suburban housewife. They, they, I think I would say they had equal power in that house. And, and one thing saw her like do domestic things, like that's why yeah. they had Jeffrey because she was out and about and she was like, you know, she was a mom, but she was like, I have other things that I have to do. Yeah. One one similarity that I see with Aunt Viv, what, that I see uh, with Claire Huxtable is another great example, um, that I see with Amy is this kind of quiet strength. This, I don't have to yell, I can be very poised and I can be very articulate and I can put you in your place in a way that truly makes you self-examine and not just inspires anger or resentment. Yeah, absolutely. 
Oh, guys. <laughs> so just on the Amy thing, the only thing I wanted to say is we had talked about earlier um, the idea of like her stories centered around, um, you know, being with Alan and giving birth to um, Eric. And it's like, no, I also feel like that's, those are her, that's her life story. You know, and it's like there is importance in telling, being able to tell your story. I think that very often, um, and not saying that anyone on this podcast did, but very often when it comes to female narratives, they have to be different. Like, again, it's like, if you're going to be a feminist, then you can't be girly. And like, if a mom is breaking out, her art shouldn't only be about being a, a wife and a mother. And it's like, what that's, her story, that's what she knows. And if anything, she is expressing something that she's an expert on because that's her viewpoint. And I just feel like there are plenty of times to where we condemn someone for being good at something that we don't necessarily prize instead of being like, maybe we should prize that equally. That's yeah. that's such a great perspective, Siege, because um, you know when I think about uh, the exceptional, like, you know, we grew up as black men in America. So we were always told that we had to be exceptional in order to get anywhere in life. And so like to just be normal, quote unquote, whatever normal means to just be okay at something is fine. And to know a lot about something that other people don't value, to have a skill in something that a lot of people don't value. Um, I think we learned in the pandemic that, you know, art, whole idea of what professions are valued and what skills are valued kind of got turned up on its head. So um, yeah, I, I, that's a really good perspective. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, you know, there's, she shouldn't be at the same time, shouldn't, she shouldn't be shamed for being proud of being a good wife and mother. That's, those are beautiful things too. And, you know, you should celebrate those things just yeah. as much as anything else. Exactly. Like, I think, it's like just specifically thinking about Eric. I mean, and we all know this. And to be fair, it's not like just Eric. It's a very common male phenomenon. But like the idea that you would condemn someone for spending their time raising you is just always like amazing to me. It's like, no, like they, they are where they're at in life because they chose to help you gain a leg in life. And your, your response is to judge and condemn them and be like, you, this is where you belong. And that's always like something to wear. Uh, what's really crazy is as I brought up all of these points, I keep thinking about the A storyline and how much this like ties into like um, the expectations we have of people and the roles that we assume that someone should play throughout the rest of their lives because they played it in one moment. Totally. I noticed that kind of um, marriage between the storylines as well as you had, you know, Corey feeling like, oh, I should I should be doing this compared to Sean or like this is what my expectations of Sean are and this is where he should excel in my brain. Same with Eric and, and, and Amy. And, and one thing I want to say about um, Eric and Amy before we we kind of venture off to the other storyline is that as we've been reviewing this series, one thing that we've talked about, we've noticed is that they always pair up Eric with Alan. They always have Eric and Alan be really chummy and buddy-buddy, and they kind of have like this 
like inside relationship that Amy and Eric really don't have. So I really love that this episode kind of challenges their relationship and pushes them to to kind of learn more about each other and to grow and even maybe even have, uh, you know, what a lot of us have with our uh, parents, which is kind of like this adult friendship. Like, I don't really need you to provide me food and shelter or anything, but we need to find a way to just stay in each other's life after that. And what is that? What does that look like? Um, so yeah, I was I was really excited to see that play out. Yeah, that's, no, that's, that's so true. And especially, you know, they're, they're both getting at that age. I guess it's probably Eric a little bit more where he's, you know, he's, I don't know how old is he here, supposed to be like 19 or 20 ish, yeah. you know, and, and that's sort of the age where you, yeah, you, you know, you're moving out of the house and you know, you're starting to grow up and you, and you start to realize that there's life beyond, your parents have a life beyond your world. You know, and then it's, it's, it was interesting to see also, yeah, like, so Eric and Amy kind of exploring that as well, and as well as Corey and Alan having, you know, their, they have that interesting heart to heart um, in that same episode as well. But yeah, it's great yeah. to see that progression between, between both of those relationships. Yeah, I was going to say that, um, it, what I think what we're both hitting on is that Amy and Eric are going out into the world. Um, you know, like, and yeah. again, and I think that that's like where the parallels is just like, you're both in a time in your life to where you have to reintroduce yourself to the world and, and kind of leave the one identity that you've had for so long behind and, and take up a new one. But then also for me, one of the reasons why I love Amy and I think one of the reasons why I remember this episode so well is I've said this while we've been watching, um, throughout the seasons is that Amy I think Amy is like me when it comes to parenting, where it's like, I don't want to necessarily be your friend. I want to make sure that you have all that you need to succeed. And I think very often, Alan, like, just wants to be, like, he wants to be on good terms with Eric at all times. Like, yeah. that, like that's why when they're not, it's such a big deal. But Alan and Eric have, like, a, a natural connection. And Amy always sees Eric as like, you are my eldest son. You are a representation of all of the effort that I put in. And I know that I put in more effort than you're showing. You know, so like, I think that that's kind of like another dynamic that we're seeing is Amy is always willing to push back on Eric in a way that Alan isn't. Absolutely. Okay. Are you guys ready to talk about Sean and Corey? Yes. Um, one of the things... The things I, I love about this storyline between uh, Corey and Sean is that um, as the show kind of explains, Sean is typically the one who's kind of running into problems and Corey's always the one saving him. And on a on a surface level, that's that's true for this episode and it's true for everything else. But by having Sean be the one that struggles consistently, he is the one who is growing. He is the one who has character arcs. Corey doesn't seem to grow as a character. He is, from what I can tell, the same Corey from season four, the same Corey from season three. There hasn't been a lot of push to have him grow as a character. So to have him get to the point where he is now a janitor at this place that he thought he was gonna be an executive of and forcing him to challenge his expectations and maybe like, I don't know everything, maybe just being a white male in an office setting isn't enough to succeed. Um, you know, that's, that's a really, um, refreshing way to approach his character that we haven't really seen. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like they show it right off the bat where, you know, you see Corey diligently filing his mail 
and you see like the two contrasts between them and their outlooks and their approaches and, and everything, you know, like he's diligently filing his mail. Sean is photocopying his butt and yes. <laughs> on, the, on the machine, you know, and then as they get through it, it's like, you know, Corey's playing by these rules that he has been taught that he should play by, you know, he thinks that he should get a good corporate job. Um, he's almost submissive. Like he, I think he was bowing to the to the uh, the executive, whoever it was. Yeah, and then Sean doesn't give a shit. He's confident this is not really what he wants. So you know, he has a kind of loose approach, right? And a confidence, a kind of confidence, absolutely, right? And then you know, ultimately, that's that's the difference between them at that point, right? And um, yeah, I thought, I think, I mean. Obviously, you know, there's a, we were talking about roles and, and I think there's this like subconscious superiority that I think Corey has. Yes. Sean, which I think just, yeah, like to, to your point, it was, you know, like Sean is always getting in trouble. Corey's always cleaning up the messes. And I think, you know, we, you there have sort of like sometimes accepted themselves in, in those roles and they kind of feed off of each other and sometimes a, a detrimental way right um and yeah and, and it's interesting to see that point where Corey had you know where he was demoted to being a janitor and sean is going into the fancy office and they're literally face to face with it and um yeah it was just it was just interesting just like to see them like right up front faced with that you know well what i thought was amazing is uh, like a couple of things as you said one it's not even subtly in this episode that like Corey had like this um idea of uh Sean. he just straight up tells him you're not supposed to be as good at this as i am you know like like yeah. straight up saying, does not beat around the bush <laughs> yeah and but but like i think what's interesting to me is the audacity and the what we got, the caucasity of, of both of them and both characters. And, and when they choose to be so bold, um, the idea that Sean, like what's funny, I love this is called how to succeed in business because if any of us have been in business, we know being a confident white guy who's just like, you know what, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. And I just, and it'll all work out. That's how it works. And getting promoted has the phone and has a credit card and like, Corey's like, but I did everything right. And one thing that I've learned as um, a professional, and I've, I've said this to several of my friends and, and my siblings and anyone I can mentor, is the idea of, no, when they say be yourself, that's the surefire way of getting, and that's, that's what white men are able to do. They're able to be themselves, which is why they uh, like they're able to be themselves unhindered, <laughs> you know? So like, it's it's the ones like Corey who are like, you know what, I'm gonna play by the rules. I'm gonna do what I'm told, I'm gonna follow. They're the ones who like, you're trying so hard to like do what you think you're supposed to do. You don't go as far as you think you will. It's the individuals like Sean who just come in and they're like, you know what? I'm gonna just do me because I don't buy into this and I never really thought I would. So what do I have to lose? And those are the ones who are rewarded in business particularly in a capitalistic white supremacy society, but, but <laughs> um, one, 
one of the things that um, I've really kind of walked away with was this idea that of street smarts versus book smarts and how, you know, the entire time we've been watching the show, we've been kind of um, told that Sean isn't as intelligent because he doesn't do as well in school. Although we've seen him excel several times outside of school. We saw him open a bed and breakfast in Feeney's house. We saw him work for the mob and do really well there. Like he's done some like crazy shit throughout his life. And he always like is a go-getter. And it was really interesting, you know, um, Yasmin brought up the idea of Corey's superiority and the way that he was even thinking of management that was above him, he was acting like, oh, I'm not worth even looking them in the eyes. Whereas Sean talked to them as equals. He talked to them like they were people. He didn't shy away from it. And I think that Sean being used to being thrown into all these wild circumstances throughout his life, you know, always having really close relationships with colorful characters like his parents, his uncle, um, a few other characters we've seen at the trailer park, I, I, I think prepared him better for this than Corey. And what I love about this episode is that it's showing that um, when you do go to that corporate setting, that sometimes the things you were taught in school aren't the things that push you ahead. Sometimes it's the things you learn outside the school that get you ahead. And I, I really love that perspective. What I think is interesting is the... Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, sorry. Sorry. The only thing I wanted to say, and then I will absolutely shut up, is um, the idea that what you said about Sean interacting with... Um, colorful characters and all this other stuff. Um, Sean understands that you can be an adult and still not know anything. Sean right. understands that you can be an adult. Because of his parents, he understands that age does not equivalent to experience or knowledge or wisdom, that they're not equal. So unlike Corey, who had these parents who seem to know everything and he has like, they can go to the answer. Sean knows that Depending on who you are, that doesn't mean anything. Just because you're older than me, just because you have a higher position, it doesn't mean that you're more intelligent than me. It just means that you are positioned differently than I am. Yeah. I wanted to talk about, I think there was some really important significance about the guy who had been there for 43 years, the character of Phil, yes. right? And I think also, like, interestingly, because there was not a lot of interaction with Feeney, with the kids, I think that kind of like filled in that, that role in a way, because, you know, he's, there was a moment where he said to Corey, I think Corey asked him like, oh, what is the lesson in this? And then he said to Corey, the lesson is you do what you're asked to do and you do it as well as you can. And, yeah. and I think that was a really significant moment. I don't think it sunk in for Corey until they had that showdown at the apartment, you know, and it was all sort of aired out in front of everyone. But like for me, that really hung in the air because it was like, you know, this guy had been in the same position for 43 years, you know, and, and even in the beginning, like when he introduced himself, Corey sort of looked at him, looked down on him in a way like, oh, you're still here, you know? Yeah. Maybe he wanted yeah. to be there. There's nothing, no, nothing wrong with that, you know? But, but the point is, is like, you know, you, the message is you, you, you have your job and this is what you're faced with at this moment and you do the best you can, you know, you don't just shit on it because you think you're above it, you know? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up um, Phil. One I thing, one little, call. 
Yes. Fun fact I want to throw out about Phil um, it, for the roll call. His name is actually Phil Leeds. That's his real name is Phil. He's yeah. actually been on Boy Meets World three different times. He was on <laughs> the You Can't Go Home Again episode where Eric and Corey are road tripping and he's the one eating the pie being like, I, I had a piece of pie. I was three hours from home. I never made it home. <laughs> he, he was the host of Quiz Show. Milton was his name on that episode um, when they were doing the uh, television quiz show. And now in this one um what i love about his character in this one is that it's almost a cautionary tale to Corey, um which is that if you don't if you just go <laughs> along with everything you think you're supposed to do and you never strive for anything outside of that you're never going to get anything outside of that so you know like you were saying he's mocking this character but he's almost looking at a future that could be his if he doesn't learn the other skills that life has to teach him yeah absolutely and but what's great about Phil is I looked up him and his record. He's done like so many bits, like so many like one episodes on so many series. And he's like yeah. just one of those character actors. To me, he's almost, I guess in this series, based on what you said, he's almost like uh, the mole man in The Simpsons. So like whenever they need an old guy, they just like cut <laughs> to, you know what I'm Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Also, like what you guys were saying in the last in the last episode of the podcast, where you know the, the shows like these, like these white sitcoms, always had these like really old celebrity cameos. Yeah. And he was in all these. I, I also looked him up, and he was in like the Dick Van Dyke Show, The Monkeys, like thir- three Happy Days. Happy uh, Days. Like, Maud. Yeah. <laughs> like Three's Company, just, like uh, around and just getting those paychecks, get those royalties. <laughs> Oh my gosh. But, but it's funny. It's true. It's like, there's, like, it's, there's these sort of, you know, people from, you know, maybe the generation above would, would recognize those. Totally. It's like, it's, well, I also think it's, it's you know, it's, it's so crazy because like, let's just take the role, like his, his work as a character actor. I think that someone would like look down on this role and be like, oh, you just were like old man number two. And it's like, no, I've been doing that consistently <laughs> yeah. I mean, like there are generate like as far as television has been on the air i've been on the air yeah. and you know it's that that whole judgment of being like oh you just have this small part you're not a star it's like, yeah but i have way more credits than you do yeah. um and i think that that's kind of like what this episode is also bringing up which is valuing someone like someone Oh, sorry, we had brought up earlier, it's like, just because it's not something that you aspire to doesn't mean that this is something that should be looked down upon. Like, I love that, like, immediately when Topanga finds out that Corey's a janitor, like, there's nothing wrong with being a janitor. Like, we know we often say this, it's like, uh, Alan um, is a manager at a grocery store. And it's like that, that like, if that's not what you want to do, that's fine. But like, also, that's not a negative thing. And like, really, what we're really doing right now is we are also bringing in the middle America class issue of if it's a blue collar job, then you failed in life. But if you're an executive, then that's that's something worth writing home about. And, and what's so true about that is just last season, we had an episode, Janitor Dad, in which Chet, Sean's father gets a job as the janitor at the high school. And the whole episode is Sean feeling embarrassed for his dad, but then later on 
understanding that, hey, my dad has a job and I should be proud of him, right? And so what's interesting is now we have Corey as the janitor. And like Corey was so supportive of Chet being the janitor when it was someone else, when it was someone from a lower class, when it was someone from a blue collar background, like that makes sense. But me, I'm supposed to be an executive, why? you have no experience in business. Your parents don't come from a corporate background. Why, why are you supposed to excel? And so I, because you want it. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing too. You know, he's, he lives this, he's, he's a white guy, lives a fairly privileged life. You know, he lives in a nice house, lives in a nice neighborhood. His parents are together. Everything is, you know, really hunky dory ultimately for Corey in a lot of ways. And, you know, and I think that kind of that worldview contributes to this, you know, that superior superiority we were talking about where, you know, he's, he views himself as maybe a, a higher class than Sean, who is, you know, from a trailer park and, you know, is, comes from, you know, is, is family is broken family and, you know, he's endured all of these, all of these things. And, you know, and when Sean becomes in this higher role in this corporate world that Corey like aspires to, it's just like, whoa, like, wait a minute, it's not supposed to be like this. It's supposed to be the other way around, you know, like you're supposed to be the janitor and I'm supposed to be the, the corporate exec, you know? And it's like, I think it was really nice to see them acknowledge that and flip that around. What's interesting and what's, I guess what I'm interested to see uh, what you guys think about is the fact that in Girl Meets World, Harley gets brought back as the school janitor. Harley Kiner? Harley Kiner gets brought back as the janitor in Girl Meets World. And again, I think for me, like, as you said, it's like, I think the show has constantly tried to reinforce that blue collar jobs or hourly, like, wage jobs or anything like that aren't necessarily inferior. They are just like, they are people making a living and they deserve respect just as much. But we also get um, Mr. Morris, played by Kevin Crowley, um, who does, is like dismissive of Corey once Corey does get the position as janitor, or even when Corey was like the male guy. To be fair, Corey put himself in the position as a male guy, but like as janitor, it's like, oh yeah, get that guy to come clean this up. It is, it's again, dismissive, but the fact that like we constantly bring janitors up as it's not bad, but at the exact same time, do you really want to be one? Yeah. Um, it's, it's just something that I think is, of course, with Boy Meets World, compl complicated. Interestingly, too, that reminds me. Do you remember? I think it's, I think it's this season, the Halloween episode, and the janitor is the killer. Oh, yes, right? and then there was Sean. Yes, yes, the yes. Well, the janitor isn't the killer. But your idea of like, of course, it's the janitor. Like yeah. the janitor, of course, yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's like, again, sort of, you know, like, kind of looking down on that in a way, like, of course he would be. What, one of the things little... that... Oh, Sorry, go, ahead. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, to me, it feels a little white savory of being like, hey, janitors are people too. You deserve to treat them with respect. Okay, do you 
are you going to give them any like substantial storylines and make sure that they're really full-fledged people? Well, I mean, well, no, I don't have time for that. Someone else will do it. And like, it's just like that, that whole situation of like, I'm good because I brought this attention to the forefront. It's like, yeah, but are you doing anything with that message? I, no. I will say to Boy Meets World's credit, they typically highlight blue collar workers. If you think of teachers as blue collar workers, because if that's the case, then they really, I mean, they've talked about, we had a whole episode about a lunch lady who made a big impact on everyone at the school. So I think the show does try to play with class in a really interesting way. Um, I think the bigger thing for me walking away from this episode, and I want to get um, your guys' ideas about this, is at no point does Corey, exp not until after he is recognized for his problems, does he encourage Sean? Does he support Sean? He's not even proud of his friend for doing well. Like, he doesn't do anything but bitch and almost like treat Sean with spite that he's not doing well. Like he blames Sean for his lack of success. Like it's kind of wild for their friendship for him not to think like at all, like, hey, maybe I need to put my ship be on the side and just support my friend. And I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, no, I, I totally saw that too. There was that when they had their showdown in the apartment, the only thing that he says is, you know, he literally says, all my life, you've screwed up, I've cleaned up, which is really insulting. I mean, this yep. is supposed to be your best friend. Like, what, what kind of a, like, it's just gross. And, um, and then, and then he says, you know, I just, I realized that I, I was jealous of you for the first time. I was, okay, and like, that's valid, but you know, he doesn't really, he doesn't say that he's proud of him and he just sort of makes it about him. Absolutely. I thought like, so that whole situation was interesting to me because one, you have Sean trying to hide his success. You know, like the phone, what was that? Nothing. I don't, I don't have a yeah. phone given to me by the company and a credit card, like Angela's praising him, but Sean like understands that it's a, a pain point for Corey and he's still being like in a time in Sean's life where he is succeeding and feels better than he's probably ever felt before, he's still being mindful of Corey and how Corey feels about it. And I think that that goes to show like which one's the better friend in this, like which one like actually values their relationship. And then also I wanted to bring up the fact that these things do happen in friendship. There's There yeah. are moments and that's part of growing up where you realize that there are two of you and you and your best friend, you've gone through life at a certain pace at a certain time and one goes does better than the other or one has more than the other. And you have to deal with those feelings of jealousy but I think it's more important that Sean was like, I feel, it feels really, really good. And Corey's only response is, yeah, it doesn't to me. You know, <laughs> like, like yeah. it really, it, okay. it really broke my heart to hear Sean say like, like almost like cry out to Corey, like, hey, I really want to enjoy my success, but I can't because your attitude is just ruining this for me. And like, even if Corey finally gets to the point where he apologizes and, oh, Sean, I'm sorry, like the experience has been tainted for Sean in a way. And, you know, like this is kind of his first big win. This dude needs a win in life. Like, where is his parents? Where is his mom? He doesn't even know. This kid Turner needs died. something. Like, Turner like is <laughs> dead. I'm convinced. <laughs> of it <laughs> it's oh, like he man. has no one but and Corey like, and this kid can't be happy for him and it's like ironic that you know Corey always positions himself as Sean's biggest supporter which in a lot of ways that he is 
but you know ultimately at the end of the day you know he inherently sees this kind of power structure a little yeah. bit and they're really that what this episode does is it highlights does Corey see himself as Sean's biggest supporter or as someone who sorry does he see Sean as someone who needs support or himself as someone who is the supporter does he see himself as the hero in this narrative uh, I'm saying this very common literally because my mind's not working right now but I guess what I'm trying to say is when he was like, oh, I'm, I'm your biggest supporter. But yeah, only when you have the upper hand. If you can't be someone's supporter, even when they're excelling more than you, then you don't really care about their success. You care about your success and being seen as someone who's a helper. I think you and that's save Sean as well. Yes. And that's one of my favorite things about this episode is that Corey um, is basically almost having the same story arc as like Arnold from Hey Arnold at this point where he is just like every episode is like, well, who am I going to help this week? Who am I going to like assist with their problems this week? Am I going to help Topanga get over her fear of flying or if I'm, you know, whatever it is. Um, and it seems as though Corey's ego is fed from being the one who helps people with their problems, but also being seen as the one who has the life that everyone aspires to have. Sean is constantly feeding his ego, being like, you have a house, you have everything. Dude, your life is great. I wish I had your life. Like, I wish I had a relationship like Topanga. Like, his ego is so fueled by Sean's envy of him that when Sean isn't envious of him and he doesn't have that, it's almost as if he doesn't have a support system that he's dependent on. And if his support is basically being fed by his friend's misfortune, what kind of friend is he? Crazy stuff. It's deep. It's deep. Um, anything else? I, I do want to bring up Topanga real fast. Topanga worked for, uh, we have one scene where we see Topanga's work study um, assignment was with a senator and just from having like one day hanging out with her she turned a bill into a law or they're going to turn something into a law and what's really interesting is that um you know in girl meets world I, I i haven't watched the whole series but i know that she starts as a lawyer who ends up becoming like a coffee shop owner um i i really wish i would have seen her as a lawyer i i i think that the fact that they kind of planted the seed of her becoming a lawyer in this, and then she ends up becoming a lawyer, something that really pays off well. Like I didn't expect for anything about her being a lawyer to be mentioned in the show. So that's great that there's some continuality there. Um, but we never get to see her in that environment. And in Girl Meets World, it's taken away from her really, really quickly. So a little disappointed in that. Yeah, I, I would have liked to see, I wish Girl Meets World continued. I know that they, they sort of fought for it. And it just, I think the issue, I'm not, I don't remember. I think the issue was Disney and they wanted to kind of like, you know, let the characters mature as they did in Boy Meets World. And yeah. things that are, you know, kids their age are going through. And, and I, I don't think Disney wanted that. I think they wanted to keep it, you know, sort of very limited in, in that one little demographic, you know. Yeah. I will agree. I will agree with you that I think that we all, like I know TC doesn't like A Girl Meets World and we've, we've had these conversations with our listeners, but I felt like it was prepared. Like they did this thing with Grownish where they moved it to Freeform and they are out able to have like a lot more adult content and 
talk about things realistically. And I think that that's what Girl Meets World needed. And that, to be honest, that's what we mostly remember about Boy Meets World are the adult lessons we got as they matured. Like that's what, like when we're starting to deal with sex and cheating and college and um, teen marriage, like all of those episodes are the ones that we honestly remember because they, they, grew with us. And I think that not wanting the characters to grow with the audience is actually what ended up hindering Girl Meets World. Detrimental, yeah. It's such a shame. And that, yeah, that's, that's the thing too that I, I, we were saying earlier, you know, like one of the things that still resonates, why this show still resonates with me is because of those things. Like I remember watching it at that time and I was around that age and I was going through, you know, maybe similar yeah. things that they were going through, you know? And, and you, and it still resonates because it, it was realistic and, and you know, it's, it's one of the reasons why I feel seasons four and five are kind of the best of the series is because it's to me and, and we're kind of seeing it here. This is kind of the first time they're starting to really tackle mature situations. I mean, in last season, season four, um, you know, there was a girl who was being abused by her dad and like, like all these crazy, Sean joined the cult. Shit got wild last season. And like, as Siege mentioned, like it's those things that as we kind of go are the lessons that we look back on and we're like, oh, I, I first saw this presented to me in an episode of Boy Meets World as a child when I was able to process it very easily. Let me extrapolate on that now that I'm an adult in this real life situation. I was going to say, it's when we leave this very special episode territory and we start to be like, no, this is just life. It's not like, I, like I'm not trying to teach you a lesson about drugs or anything. And it's like, no, like this episode right here, this is life. Like, <laughs> and I think that that's really important. I think especially like moments when, you know, when Turner was in the hospital and you felt that grief with Sean, right? Because, you know, if you had lost somebody that you really loved or who was you know, a figure that you looked up to or somebody who was special to you in that way and you had that relationship, you know, like you felt that grief with him and there wasn't, there wasn't a happy ending to that because there's not. No, he actually never saw Turner ever again. <laughs> even, like even more so. Now. Yeah. Like, uh, is there a bra moment from this episode? Does anyone have a moment that they saw that they felt like really didn't age well? It's okay if you don't. No. I felt like this episode was pretty tight, so I don't know that I have one. A Feeny lesson? What's the main takeaway from this episode? I think we've covered a lot and like it's been layered, but for me, I think the, um, I think the uh, lesson is don't confine people to the roles that you know them as. You know, it's like people are complex and they're, they're multidimensional and success to them looks differently. Like that's yeah. one of the things I got yeah, from it. Absolutely. I, and I think also, you know, don't underestimate anyone. Yeah. I think is another one is I think it's a what Phil taught me slash what Amy taught me. Yeah. <laughs> Moment. Yeah. Definitely like so, like uh, being your loved one's biggest supporters, even when it's something that makes you uncomfortable. Oh, God, that's a really good one. Yeah. I love that you got it. Like, I'm jealous. <laughs> I <laughs> Way know. more insightful than mine. That's profound. Um, and what grade are we giving this episode? B plus. I think it was like a at least a solid B. At least a solid B. I think it was, you know, as as you as you mentioned, it was multi layered. There was a lot of 
you know, wonderful things to take from this. I think the characters grow in uh, really important ways individually. Um, yeah, I think I would say B, B plus. Siege. Yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I think for the first time in a while, I'm gonna give this episode an A. Not only because like my own nostalgia and like I remembered it immediately, but also I just feel like it does bring up, I always love stories that give you complexity in characters and actually trying to say something um, within the 30 minute structure that it has. And I think this one did really well on both storylines, which we very rarely do. Usually one of the storylines you're like, I didn't need that. But I felt like it was, both storylines did really, really well. Yeah. I'm also giving this episode an A. I thought it was the best written episode we've had this season, actually. So I'm, I'm really excited for it. I, I, I'm telling you, this whole, the rest of the episodes in this whole season are fantastic. Like, I think we're really going to start seeing some strong stuff. And I, I think that this is, um, like you said, multi-layered. It, and I love that we're just seeing growth in characters we don't typically see. Amy and Corey are both growing in this episode. Um, so I really like that. So you got to see Angela being proud of her man. I mean, like. You knew she was going to be proud. He got a job. He got a son. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, Yasmin. Yeah. Our pop culture journalist, do you have any homework recommendations for our oh listeners? I do. Um, <laughs> speaking of, um, speaking of, you know, roles of moms in TV shows, um, immediately I thought of Gilmore Girls, um, right? Which I, okay, I never watched it growing up. I don't know why. I just never did. I don't know why. Like it was on and I just didn't watch it. I I have like no reason for it. Anyway, so <laughs> so I I spent the last like month binge watching it and I just I mean, it's so well written. I mean, of course it's not perfect, but it's so well written. The characters are so complicated and flawed. Um they go through so many interesting arcs. The music, the soundtrack is like fucking phenomenal. Um, it's so funny. I just, I, I love it. Um, but I was so impressed by it. But like the thing, speaking of moms, like you have this contrast of Lorelai, who is this, you know, self-made, like single mom, independent woman, runs her own inn, has her own business. Like she's totally self-sufficient versus, you know, her mom, Emily Gilmore, who is, you know, somebody who lives, of, you know, in a, a life of immense privilege, at the same time is sort of stuck in this mold of, and she did say, I think explicitly, like when um, the Richard Gilmore, the father had a heart attack and, and, you know, she, she said, you know, like, I, I don't know what I would be without him. Like my, you know, I was gonna, I finished school and I wanted to get married and I, and my job was to support him and to plan our social events um, and, and run the household. And then, she, you know, there was like, they had very few tender moments between each other, her Emily and Lorelai, and I think she was drunk. So it like <laughs> lowered her barriers a little bit, but she was like, you know, I'm so proud of you. You really, you know, it's different. It's different for you than it was for me. And, you know, you can, I think it was like when her her marriage broke up and she was like, you know, you'll be okay. Like if, if you don't get married, you know, like it's okay if you do, and it's great if you do, but it's also great if you don't. You know, and it's, it was interesting just you see this like dichotomy of these two characters who are in these two different, you know, roles, living these two different, you know, 
totally different experiences, um, totally different types of mothers, you know? Anyway, so I, I, I if I want to give any homework, it's to watch. The if our listeners are listening to this and not watching it, Siege was literally <laughs> losing his shit the entire time she was talking about Gilmore Girls, bouncing up and down, getting so hyped. <laughs> I was literally dying. Like being like just listening is so like, by the way, Yasmin, you and I can talk Gilmore anytime. Okay. I actually did grow up with it. I'm actually an expert okay. on Stars Hollow. Like I've never I know seen it. Everything, I know way more than I should know. But like, I grew up with it for two reasons. One, for me, um, it was a great example of like, like the mother-daughter relationship that Lorelai had with Emily was very similar to what I had with my mother. And like that understanding that, and like, I just, I got it immediately and it was something I connected to. But also just in terms of this episode of what you were talking about, about mothers and challenging, earlier in the episode when we were talking about Amy and what you got on television, I was going to say that the, what actually made Gilmore Girls uh, unique and amazing is Lorelai is one of our earliest anti-hero, female anti-hero characters. Lorelai is a character that doesn't get it right. She's constantly messing up. She was a teen mother. She constantly makes the wrong choices in her love life. She is um, a mother who doesn't really have boundaries with her daughter. And later on in the episode, they show the consequences of that. And like, yeah, you were really close when you were younger, but maybe not setting those boundaries made it even more difficult for your daughter and for yourself as life has gone on. So I always champion the show Gilmore Girls as a perfect example of not only how to write female characters and give them complexity, but also of someone who's like, yeah, you are trailblazing just in the fact that you are messy and you are allowed to be messy in a way that you just don't allow a lot of female characters to be. I think that's what's so great about shows like that is because, you know, that's, that's reality, you know, like reality isn't like an immaculate sitcom, like reality is messy. Reality is you make tons of mistakes and, you know, and you have to deal with it. And, and I love that show for how they present that. Also, like there's the idea, I think uh, what, it may not be this line, but it's very similar to where something along the lines of Emily saying, I went from my father's house to the sorority house to your father's house. And it's this idea of like the previous female generation only having the options to do these things, but like this new generation being able to explore their own selves and identity and wants and needs. And I think that that's what we saw with Amy this episode is this idea of like, yo, I chose this path because that's what everyone was doing, but I'm not limited to just this and I need you to see me as more. And then also with Gilmore Girls, it gives context to someone who chose that lifestyle. And Emily's not just a victim, she's someone who, uh, sorry, she's not just a mother, she's a victim of her times and made decisions and they're not always white, right? And so, yeah, anyway, I could talk about Gilmore Girls forever. I won't, but just know, <laughs> if you ever wanted to start a separate podcast or interview me about it. Oh my God, <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm gonna restart watching the You're in a Life now because I just finished the series. Yeah. We'll talk, we'll talk. <laughs> I have never seen a single episode of Gilmore Girls. <laughs> no, I'm going to have to jump on it now. I guess my homework really is to watch some Gilmore Girls. So I'll, I'll, I'll walk away with that. Um, all right. Well, I guess that's it. Uh, we want to thank everyone for listening to the episode. Um, you didn't yeah. do your homework. Oh. oh, you and I didn't do our homework. <laughs> yeah. so you can go first. 
Um, well, I guess my homework assignment in that same vein is I've been watching the morning show. Um, this is my first time watching it. I, I just got the Apple TV plus or whatever. And, um, you know, I, we're talking about women doing like unexpected things and taking on really interesting roles and Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston are, are kind of perfect in that, in that show. Their, their acting is, is fantastic, but also, um, you know, this is a show that kind of challenges the me too movement and what it means when, you know, a woman takes the place of a man and what the responsibilities are once they get there and how they choose to navigate the situation. Um, and I've just been really enthralled by it. Um, so I, I definitely recommend people checking out the morning show. That's a wonderful show. I, are you? Did you finish it? Or are you still? No, I have not finished it. I'm still watching those spoilers. Okay. All I will say, also very relevant to this Boy Meets World episode, there's an interesting, you know, you see an interesting view of Alex, um, who is Jennifer Aniston's character, her relationship with her her daughter, and yeah. that that mother relationship. Yeah, definitely. Interesting. It's a it's an interesting storyline. Interesting. Story. So kind of, it's funny, I guess like this, the, this week's homework is uh, women first, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> which is my homework is for those of you who don't know, the nanny is now on HBO Max. Oh my, if I have to hear this kid talk about the nanny. And I've done nothing, <laughs> nothing but watch the nanny over the He's last. obsessed. Uh, it's, it's like, tell me it's not great. It's phenomenal. <laughs> it's well written. It still holds up. Sorry, you were saying, Jasmine? Oh no, I just said it's one of the best shows ever. It's yeah. really, <laughs> really good. It is Lucille Ball for the 90s. The, like, the comedic timing of everyone on the cast is just amazing. And I have like, like the fashion, the comedy, the time piece, time capsule that it was. Um, of course, as with anything in the 90s, it does not handle certain situations well, specifically LGBTQ. Um, but like the idea we were talking about like someone who had certain expectations and no one really thought that they would be able to do much and then finds themselves like the whole fish out of water, but finding success um, was very relevant. And just like, if you have time and you love television and you love like just screwball comedy, um, my boyfriend who also was someone who was like, I don't want to watch this, leave me alone. I called him every now and then and be like, who's that character? And that's funny. And like, I was like, yeah, exactly. It's good television. I just have to say, I, I love that show so much for so many reasons. I, I also, like, I grew up watching it. Like we watch that every week, you know? And it's interesting. <laughs> what I love so much about Fran Drescher is that, you know, when she pitched that show, they wanted her to be Italian. And she firmly maintained, no, I want to be, the character has to be Jewish. I'm Jewish, that's what I know. And this is how it's gonna be. And, and I just, I mean, I just, I love that, I, you know, I, I'm Jewish and, you know, there, there actually wasn't a lot of openly Jewish characters on TV in the 90s. You had Representation. Seinfeld, right, yeah, right. And like there was Seinfeld, which you assumed they were Jewish, maybe because of Larry David and like, you know, and you know, Jerry Seinfeld is Jewish, but there, it was never discussed. It was never yeah. like acknowledged. It was just sort of there. Um, but Fran Drescher just celebrated it and, and, and it was just so awesome. And it's, I mean, like she taps into all these, you know, stereotypes, like the, like Yenta <laughs> grandmother and like the overbearing mother and everything. But like, she says, you know, there's stuff that's imperfect there as well, but it's just, 
it's so good. And I just, I, I love that she really just, you know, stood her ground for that and like, wouldn't, wouldn't take anything else. And I, I love it. And she's amazing. I, I never thought about the show in terms of representation, but that's a really interesting perspective. And it does make me more interested to check out the show now. So I, again, it's not one that I watched growing up, but Siege has been talking about it for a while. And with your recommendation, I might have to add it to the list with Gilmore Girls. <laughs> I have to say like, so with like, you, it's so funny to me that you said with both representation and like how important it was to see a out and proud Jewish character on television because um, I always think it's funny that people forget not too long ago, Italian was diversity on television. Like, like to be like, oh, he's an Italian meant that we filled our diversity quota. We don't need to do anything else. There doesn't need to be a black family. We have Italians. And that's how Tony Danza found work for a whole decade, actually. Exactly. Like, so, <laughs> so it's really funny to me that like, and now it's kind of taken for granted, but like, no, that was a really big deal to have someone proudly embrace. And like I said, I think it was a little bit different because there are stereotypes, but like they're done, you can tell they're written from within the community yeah. and they're portrayed by people from the community and that makes it different. And then um, I was just gonna say that it's really interesting to see even like how they do in certain ways, like body positivity and the idea of like, you know, like sometimes there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of fat jokes, but at the exact same, as many fat jokes as there are, there's just like, I'm, I'm just as desirable. I'm just as sexual. I'm like all of these things, like my body doesn't limit me from experiencing the world in a full fledged way. And I just, and like, I thought that that was something, you know, like not being apologized for like having a healthy appetite and be like, no, yeah. I'm going to eat. <laughs> and so, yeah. Sylvia Fine. Sylvia Fine and Yetta are honestly cool. gold in themselves. Like it just is, so. <laughs> oh, it's such a great show. Yeah, I I also recently rewatched that. <laughs> tell you. Uh, I, I've been trying to, we will, I'll let us wrap up TC, I promise, but no, I've been fine. trying to get Rex to watch Gilmore because I'm like, you if you just get into it, you'll love it. And then um, what's also funny is my boyfriend is, he's from like the Emily kind of um, world. That's like where he grew up in, but he himself is kind of a Lorelei. Like he was like, cool. I, I have like this very prestigious family with all this money, but I want to like, hang out with the Filipino girls and listen to Janet Jackson. You know, like, like it was just like that whole, I'm a rebel in my privileged way type. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah just such, such a great show. Both yeah, I mean, how, how many shows have you binged during the pandemic? I don't know if I want to say. <laughs> Basically, I've watched every show that exists at this point. <laughs> you know what? At, yeah, what am, I'm at the point now, well, I, I told you earlier, <laughs> <laughs> now, when I was preparing for our, this podcast, I was like, you know, the um, episodes are really short, you know, I'll just, I'll just start from the beginning of season five. It's only, it'll take like a couple hours to get to this episode, right? And so now I'm so deeply invested. So like, I think I'm going to rewatch. Add Bloodman's World to the list. <laughs> I love it. Oh. Also, you're the second person in our interview process who's like, no, I'll just start from the beginning. And I was like, you guys do way more. I'm like, the episode that I'm supposed to watch, and that's it. <laughs> but it's funny, like, I I, I mean, I, I watched it growing up, and I, I, I've rewatched it over the years. So, like, I, I, I know, you know, all the episodes, but it's still, like, you still get, I think, a lot of value when you when you rewatch it. And, you you know, 
pick up little things that you didn't realize before you didn't pick up on before. Yeah, for you, it's not necessary that you were binging television, you were researching for your yeah. job. Like, like this yeah. is part yeah. of the work. Thank so. you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, thank you so much for joining Yo. us. This was so much fun. By the way, come back anytime. Anytime, honestly. Thank you. Amazing guest. Thank you for having me. I'm honest, I'm so honored. I, I, I love the show and I love talking to you guys. So, I mean, anytime you awesome. want to talk about the nanny or boy school or Gilmore girls, I mean, I'm here. <laughs> First one we call. Where can um, people find you? Oh, so um, I'm, I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm on Instagram. Um, I'm... My name is at Yasmin Shemish um, on for both handles. Um, I post all of my work there, and um, yeah. One of the things I was telling her was that uh, I read a recent article she did about the music on Dawson's Creek and it's fantastic. It's so well written and it really unlocked so many memories as I was reading it. I'm so in love with the music on that show and um, I highly recommend people checking out that, uh, that piece. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate you saying that. Thank yeah. you. It really is interesting to see like the time, like the time capsules media has, and you can be like, oh, wait a minute. That, that, that's right. That was a part of our, our lives in our, that time. It's so crazy. Like I'm, I mean, I'm just, I'm just a huge fangirl. <laughs> so I feel like I just, and I, and it's, you know, and I feel really lucky that I, I get to kind of just like gush about all the stuff that I love for work. Um, very fortunate that I get to do that. Um, but it's, it's funny because, you know, all the stuff that I grew up with is like turning 25, turning 20, and like, I'm so deeply intimate with it. And so it's like- It's an excuse <laughs> to revisit it. Oh my God, whenever an anniversary comes up, I'm like- I think I saw, did you, did you do an article on Sum 41? I did, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of, like the, the unlocking of memories. <laughs> I mean, oh, listen, I, so I did, um, I did this piece for Billboard. They, they, they do this every year. They do like, um, like a 20th anniversary week. Mm. So last year it was, you know, stuff that came out in 2000 and, and um, this week it was 2001. Um, and so it was all these, you know, important albums and things that, that, that came up in that year and so um I, I got to speak with with Derek about uh their all killer no filler album and he was I've interviewed him before and, and he was so lovely then and but like we just had such an awesome conversation because he was just so open and um and, and lovely and like really candid and you know it was just so much fun to you know deep dive into that album and how they made it and and Incredible. What it meant for them and everything so it was it was a lot of fun it was it was a pleasure to do that so but yeah again like i just got to fan girl so <laughs> my, my first mosh pit first mosh <laughs> pit you never forget I, I your love first that one everyone has their first mosh pit like, I remember siege do you remember your first mosh pit real fast i do i remember my first mosh pit i can't remember like the name of it but it was actually in winston-salem north carolina it was probably for me junior year. Um, and like, I just was like going through this alternative phase. We all did, but like, yep. this was my particular year that I was doing it with the spiky necklace and everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, we went to this pub and I was like, I didn't know why people did this, but like, 
I'm going all in. And then you learn, I can only do this but for so long. Like the idea of being in a mosh pit at 30 is like, no, like those are medical bills. Like, yeah. <laughs> I call an elbow to my eye at a yellow card concert. And that's when I knew that mosh pits love- weren't for me. <laughs> yeah. They're dangerous. I remember I was, I was grade 11. So I was like 16, 741 at the Italian Cultural Center. It was very sweaty. I had hair ripped out. Wow. <laughs> wow. It was freaking awesome. Was- I mean, like, here's the thing. There, in the moment when you're young, if you haven't done a mosh pit and you are, you know, below a certain age, and that, again, I'm not saying that you can't, I'm just warning you if you're above 25. Um, <laughs> if you're below 25 and you have the energy, go to a mosh pit. I mean, now- Are mosh pits kind of like- a thing? Even before I COVID, where mosh pits- I don't think they are. I was just thinking about it. Like, the they idea of being- still a thing. There's still a thing, like, cause I, you know, I, I, you know, go and do concert reviews and stuff quite often. And I mean, now, like, I, I will stand in the back. I won't be, I won't be in this, it's dangerous. Like, I want to keep all my hair at this point. <laughs> but like, they still, like, I mean, depends on the show. If it's like a hard rock, like a punk show or, you know, like a kind of heavier show, like those, they swirl around. They just, they're still there. Okay. Again, they're a moment of like just energy. And I think they are so, they're amazing to look at. They're amazing to be a part of it. To me, it's like people living life at the maximum, but also, as I said right now, <laughs> every single person listed an injury. And I just think that, that you should know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is, it is like, it is an energy, you know, it's, it's yeah. just like pure excitement, I guess. And yeah, expression, like, expression. Yeah. Well, thank you again. We loved having you. Um, this was a fantastic episode. We really appreciate your your input and coming on. Um, Siege, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at I am not your Oreo, where I am almost always either talking about something political or retweeting something on Black Twitter because they always keep it live and I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you can find me on Twitter as well at Anna Kendrick RT, where I'll be retweeting Anna Kendrick's <laughs> tweets. I have resumed I hate you so much. <laughs> Everything she tweets, I retweet so please follow me um and (laughs) also please um check us out on all of our brummies world social media our tiktok all that stuff you guys have been really great with interacting and leaving us comments and we appreciate it um so yeah that's all i got i just want to say we have to figure some time to put this on we have been asked about two questions on previous episodes that i've told audiences i was like the next one we're going to get to you and every single time we don't have time so i i'm letting you know now uh, on air so we can yes. keep <laughs> be held responsible. We'll release a, a, a little mini episode where we just answer questions or something. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Alright. Um, well, thanks everybody. And um, so I, I guess it's just time to wish tell everybody that they should dream. Try. Do good. Yeah! Later, bro! <laughs> Later, bro!